Welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast with Dr. Laura May. Hello and welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com, the podcast that explores social conflict and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Laura May, and today I have with me Dr. Oded Adomi Lashem, a political and social psychologist based at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He is a postdoctoral fellow at the Truman Research Institute for the Advancement of Peace. He's a senior research associate at Psychology of Intergroup Conflict and Resolution Lab, and he specializes in the beliefs and perceptions of people mired in protracted conflicts. Welcome, Adomi. Hi. Hi, Laura. Great to be here. I'm very excited to have you here because you sent me a couple of chapters of your forthcoming book, and now I want to know everything about hope in the intractable conflict. So (laughs) prepare yourself. (laughs) (laughs) It will be a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. I, I hope so. So look, first things first, what led you to study hope specifically in what often seems like hopeless context? So the intractable conflict in Israel, Palestine has been going on for decades. Generations of Israelis are, and Palestinians are involved in, in this very intense conflict. And uh, there were also attempts to, to solve the conflict that now that they have been futile. So you could say, okay, this is a hopeless uh, situation. And in many ways, just because of this is really a very good place to study hope when it is almost Mm -hmm. absent and it is when it's most challenged. And one of the things that we'll probably talk about it a bit later on, but hope has actually two dimensions. So hope, when we want to conceptualize and actually measure hope, we need to look at the two dimensions that that comprise hope. One of them is the levels of desires for something. So the more I want Mm -hmm. and desire and aspire for something, the more I hope for it. And the second dimension is my expectations that this desire will be fulfilled. So my assessment of the feasibility, the goal that I want to attain. And very interesting, in intractable conflicts, like in other severe social situations, the desires for peace and conciliations are very high. So one of the dimension is actually extremely high. People desire and aspire to get out of this conflictual situation and into conflict transformation and resolution. But the expectation dimension is very low, right? Mm-hmm. And, and studying hope when the desires for something are so high, but the belief in the feasibility is so low is really an interesting place to study hope. One could think maybe perhaps about uh, people that have severe illness, right? They have really severe illness. They are at the hospital and their situation is not getting better. They aspire and their desire for life and to get out of the pain and illness might be extremely hard. Perhaps their expectations that this could be fulfilled is low. And then studying hope and understanding hope in these circumstances really is really intriguing. And also the behavioral outcomes. Mm-hmm. Of this hope. So what does it mean in terms of how people behave when they want something so badly, but they think it is impossible to achieve? I don't know if it, answer, if it answers your question. <laughs> I feel like you've answered my question, but you've taken me to a very interesting place nonetheless. You mentioned this idea of an intractable conflict because you study particularly hope in intractable conflict. So what actually is an intractable conflict for those who may not know? 
Yeah, so there are different de definitions of intractable conflicts and people in political science in IR also call it protracted conflicts, enduring rivalries are all sorts of terms that these, describe these ongoing conflicts that actually they last several generations and the protractedness of the conflict is exactly one of the most important features of these types of conflict because usually what happens like any conflict there is some competition over resources, right? It could be land, it could be political power, it could be something else. But then societies, when they are competing for these resources and when the conflict becomes violent and they have to sacrifice their lives and kill others, they need to form a very rigid and expansive social psychological infrastructure to mm -hmm. enable them to keep on the conflict going. So if you are competing over resources, you have to have a very good explanation that you are right and the other mm -hmm. side is wrong and you have to have, you need to be determined in, in your fight. So people and societies actually create these social psychological beliefs and emotions and attitudes and perceptions about the conflict. Then after a while, they become actually the anchor of the conflict. So in many ways, the theory behind this says that the competition or the main problem is not the resource anymore, right? It's not about where the borders would be. It's about these very detrimental and destructive beliefs, attitudes, perceptions that these societies have. And that is actually uh, kind of the center of the problem. And therefore, conflict resolution experts need to focus on these issues rather than the more material Issues. Mm. And this is true for conflicts, the conflict in Israel-Palestine. Cyprus is also a very intractable conflict, the conflict mm. between the Greek and the Turkish Cypriots on the island of Cyprus. But you could also think about uh, a dispute between neighbors mm. that has been going on for so long. It started because, I don't know, that neighbor thought the fence should be here and the other... No, but, and they started to fight about that. But during the process, they needed to establish some justification, very strong justification for the conflict and, and it's where that it intensified. And so it doesn't really matter anymore. The fence doesn't really matter anymore. I distrust the, that neighbor. He is always lying. He is aggressive. We wanted to, we proposed so many ways to solve it. He always denied them. Ta -ta 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 -ta. Both sides, of course, believe in these things. Of course. And so really, when you look at these kind of very deeply rooted disputes that persist for a long time, this is like the, their intractability. Right. And the question course, is, yeah. could we actually solve these intractable conflicts? And, and there are some ways that, that this could be done, but it's, of course, very difficult. Of course, because you have these very sort of strong conflict narratives or conflict stories that you need to psychologically untangle, right? Yeah, and I will say, and I will say there are two things here. First of all, societies that are involved in these conflicts and really sacrifice, sacrifice their lives and are prepared to kill and be killed, they really need to justify but they also need to explain war is a chaotic circumstance. War is chaos. Need some explanation. Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? And what is the story? How it all began? How it's going to evolve? And th these explanations really help cope. It's a coping me mechanism for societies. And by the way, speaking of one of these, the, one of the most fundamental beliefs in intractable conflicts, usually held by 
the, uh, both parties is that the conflict is inherently irresolvable. People that are involved in these long-standing disputes believe that the conflict will never be resolved. Now, first of all, they have it's also based on what they see around them, right? So it's not totally detached from reality. The conflict has been going on for so long and people project that into the future. But as we know, if you are so skeptical about something and pessimistic about the chances for something, you will never try to engage in solving it, right? It's never going to be solved. Why should I start listening to the other side? Why should I think about compromise if the conflict will never end? And so that in many ways becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because you think that the conflict will never end. You don't do anything about that. The conflict only persists or escalates, and that kind of proves that the conflict will never end. So that is so detrimental and so destructive, this belief that the conflict is inherently irresolvable, and this is what I study. Just now you mentioned that the conflict is not completely detached from reality. There's something they can see as a sort of ongoing proof or evidence that there is a conflict there. But you've also mentioned that it's not about the fence anymore with bad neighbours, right? So should I understand then that this sort of evidence of ongoing bad relations, of ongoing conflict can actually be the relationship itself? Yes, it is. So when we see for as we speak, unfortunately, as we speak, there is tension and violence between the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea. So in the Holy Land, which Israelis and Palestinians live in. And when Israelis see hostile moves or hostile actions of the Palestinians, they don't, they, of course, they have no empathy for that. And they say, okay, you see, these people, they have no value for life. They are always aggressive. They are only, they only use violence, etc. But Palestinians, when they look at actions of the Israelis, they see exactly the same thing. And they explain everything. There is a famous, what we call the, the fundamental attribution error. When we attribute negative actions of the other people as their character, they're always like that. They have been violent. The violence is in their culture, etc. And we attribute the circumstances to our negative actions. So these kind of things, including attribution error, et cetera, are really what people see all the time and what people experience and see all the time. So indeed, it's not only about where the border is. It's about how the adversary behaves, its character, our character, which is, of course, peace. We're uh, the best, peace. yeah. We're the Very best. Much. We're peace seeking mm -hmm. right when we use force it's only for retaliation and of course mm -hmm. in a long fight it's always retaliation it's always revenge so this really becomes a problem what i have to say is that what we know that in intractable conflicts people have very rigid beliefs and perceptions about the adversary beliefs mm -hmm. about themselves but also beliefs about the conflict as an entity right mm -hmm. so the conflict is like an entity in itself and one of these mm -hmm. beliefs is that the conflict it would never be resolved, right? So what mm -hmm. I focus on is less on people's perceptions of the out-group or their in-group, but of the character mm -hmm. and nature of the conflict itself as an entity or as a subject of evaluation. And then okay. trying to change that <laughs> is, is difficult. And luckily me and other colleagues, we are both studying it, but we are also doing experimental work on changing this so challenging this perception of intractability and uh, irreconcilability using these hope inducing interventions so if we have time i could talk about that 
Possibly. Believe me, it's going to be on my list. So as you were talking just now about these persistent images of the other and how we're always the good people, right? Like we're, we would never do anything bad. I just had this image. I lived for a little while in Russia and I was studying Russian. And I remember one day in class, the Russian teacher said to me, because we were, teach we were learning a very interesting version of history in this class, <laughs> might I add. And so she said to this class how Russia had never attacked a country ever in its history and never would. It was a very peaceful country about how you know, sometimes people just attacked it and they were defending themselves. And just obviously unhinged, perhaps our perceptions of the rest of the world. But she was almost in, in tears as she was saying this because she was so emotionally committed to this idea and what you referred to as this socio-psychological infrastructure, right? Because our beliefs and maybe our self-esteem and our vision of ourselves and the people around us become very strongly entangled with these ideas of good and bad and heroes and villains and stories. Exactly. Yeah. It's very hard for people, certainly groups, to take responsibility for their, for their problematic actions. And so there is a really mm -hmm. serious, very sophisticated system of justifications, right? Even if mm -hmm. we do attack, it is only a, for defense, right? Defending our interests or we were threatened. And if we would not attack, they would attack us and then we would perish, etc. So everything is really framed as a defense. In another thing that we also need to say about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, that it is also a very asymmetrical conflict. So the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians, Israel has superior military strength, economic strength, diplomatic strength. Israel is a state and a recognized state. Mm -hmm. The Palestinians are stateless and controlled actually and occupied by, by the Israeli military. So this is also something that we need to look into because not all intractable conflicts are also asymmetrical. So there's like mm. another component here that should be considered. Absolutely. And so just before we move on to talk about hope a little bit, I'm just wondering if there's a similarity between what we've described here with these very violent, very apparent conflicts and conflicts, for example, between political parties and supporters of political parties, I think is most clearly and infamously captured, at least in the Western media in the US, right? Sort of Democrats versus Republicans, the emotional connection to these parties. Do they operate in similar ways as far as these stories and the ongoing nature of conflict? That's a good question. And also history, many times it does what it wants. We could predict, we could analyze, etc. And then history does whatever it wants. It, we know from history, of course, from global history and past history, that all society is immune to even very violent social and political phenomena. Our hopes, of course, is that societies, certainly democratic societies, know to navigate differences in opinions in a way that is constructive. Uh, disagreements in many ways are like the raw material for if it if they are like praxis almost. You've got these sort of two forces coming together, they meet, they create conflict, and then something's born out of it. Right? Mediators see it all the time. Mediators, when 
successful mediators, when they work <laughs> with two rival parties, sometimes at the end, the solution benefits both parties. And actually, is a one step is a development. And we want to see the de democracy like that, right? And then building itself into a more in a smarter, kinder, affluent place. But it could also, when it's not managed correctly, of course, it could also deteriorate. And what, mm -hmm. you know, I think that, again, I'm prophesizing here, so I might yeah. not, but, but what I'm saying is that it could deteriorate into violence. And then, of mm -hmm. course, people even become more rigid, more mm -hmm. stubborn, more hostile, but it could also go into a more constructive way. We, yeah. we should see. But just to be clear, though, the violence is not a necessary stage to create a better outcome. <laughs> oh, of course not. Even I will say the opposite. Yeah, it, it violence is means that you that uh, that dispute was managed destructively, right? If the if violence comes out, it means that there is a failure in 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 managing it and controlling the issues that that they were in dispute. For sure, we want to avoid that as much as possible. Yeah, great. That's always worth saying. <laughs> you know, people who point to the podcast saying, well, they've said that conflict leads to creation. Let's all start punching each other. But no. Yeah, I am sure that I am sure that the mediators and experts in alternative dispute resolution will agree that agreements, right, when they are managed correctly, they are actually, they could build people, they could build relationships, they could build mm -hmm. societies. This is a democracy. This is democracy, yeah. correctly managing disputes. For sure. But now, turning to hope, you mentioned a little bit already about what hope is, but perhaps you could explain it because I understand it can be understood differently in different contexts. So very interestingly, in many languages, hope is used to signify two things that are close, but they're actually quite distinct. The first, sometimes hope is used to signify how much we want something. We say, I hope it, it will be nice tomorrow. I hope this email finds you well. We use hope to signify our desires and aspirations. And it makes sense. The more we want something, the more we hope for it. It certainly makes sense. And But sometimes we use it to signify our expectations for something. So you could say, now that, now that the surgery went well, I hope my hopes are higher for recovery. And here you actually express your expectations or like your assessment of the chances to, to attain this goal of recovery. So sometimes it's used as a wish and sometimes it's used as an expectation and sometimes, and most of the time it's a mix, right? And this is true in many languages. I'm thinking about Spanish because when you're an English speaker taught Spanish, you're told this one word, esperar, means to wish, to hope for something, but also to wait for something. And exactly. I was like, I like this. I've got a strong expectation the bus is going to come. All my hopes are bound up in its arrival. Yeah, and this is true for in many languages. And so the desires and expectations are distinct, but actually they are really tied together because mm -hmm. sometimes I would rather not want something I think is really impossible. Mm -hmm. So here, because the expectation dimension is low, mm -hmm. it's my, the wish dimension or the desire dimension so i can never get it so i won't bother hoping for it i don't think i'm gonna so i don't bother wishing for it okay all right okay, okay. you see the hope is it's tricky but sometimes 
also when you really want something you tend to boost your expectations right you, you really desire something you want something so badly assess it's the likelihood of getting it as higher just because you want it more, right so there is a connection between these two dimensions even though that when we look for example when look at the correlations between them they are significant but they are not very strong they are between mm -hmm. point 0.1 and 0.3, which is low to medium correlation between these two dimensions. Mm -hmm. So they are distinct, but they have some connection. And the word hope is so confusing. So I could say, I really hope there will be peace, mm -hmm. but I don't have any hope there will be peace. Mm -hmm. Right? First one, I meant it as I really wish and desire mm -hmm. peace. I really hope there will be peace. But I don't have any hope. I don't have any expectations or assessment. The assessment of feasibility is so low. So hope is so tricky, and not only in terms of the everyday use and the just semantics. It's actually mm -hmm. embedded in the idea of hope. And if we want to tease them apart, we actually have to do it intentionally. So mm -hmm. in, when I study hope and I have one of the bigger projects that I initiated and direct, it's called the Hope Map Project. The Hope Map Project is a global studies project that measures the hope for peace in conflict zones around the world. Amazing. And so I, I have large scale surveys and other studies that measure hope for peace in all sorts of conflicts. But I don't actually use the word hope in the survey mm -hmm. because I don't know if the participant is talking about her wishes or expectations, I actually asked it separately. So for example, if we're talking about, I don't know, hope for justice, I will ask mm -hmm. someone how much they wish it. Yeah. So the desired dimension. And a couple of questions later, I will ask, what is her assessment of the feasibility of justice? So this is the expectation. Yeah. And then what you do is just you place that on a bi-dimensional plane. So X and Y almost. Exactly. You have people with high wishes, but low expectations, people mm -hmm. with some people have both. Both of them are high. Some people, both mm -hmm. of them are low. So you really, it's mapped on a bi-dimensional scale. And by the mm -hmm. way, when you look at hope like that, it also shows hope's opposites. So what is the opposite of hope? I'm asking you, Laura, what's the opposite of hope? Oh, I would say worry, to have a worry. Or maybe a fear, because I guess you fear because you've got the expectation that it might happen, but also that you're like physically afraid of it. So you don't desire it either. Right. So the hope has two opposites. Ooh. One is fear. One is fear. Exactly okay. like you said, when we think that the expectation level is low, we think that something is going to happen. Right. And the mm -hmm. more we think it, this bad or malign thing is going to happen, the more we fear it. But the mm -hmm. desire is in the negative, right? And the more we mm -hmm. don't want it, the more we fear it. It's something Ooh, bad yeah. going to happen. So fear and threat is one opposite. But the other opposite is despair. Despair is when the desire is high, but the expectation is in the negative. I really want something badly, but I think it is mm -hmm. impossible. So when you put it on these, like there are, there are two dimensions, you also see yeah. the opposites are exposed. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I was just wondering, do they ever collapse together, fear and despair, in the same way that sort of hope collapses together? Not necessarily. I'm not an expert mm -hmm. in fear. I have one I have one, one study that looks at perceptions of threat and fear of Israelis and Palestinians and how that connects to their 
wishes and expectations for peace. But yeah, it's something that should I should look more into. The next book is going to be about for further study. <laughs> Extra research needed, give us the funding. All right. <laughs> no, that's so interesting. And so then when it comes to a conflict, we've never established what hope is. And now you've quizzed me on the spot. Who's the most hopeful in conflict? Is it winners, losers? Who's hoping? Who's not hoping? Yeah, that's a great question. And when you look at hope at these two dimensions, it also clarifies these things. So first of all, we could, if we simply look at demographics, uh, we see both in Israel and in uh, Palestinian territories in the West Bank, in the Gaza Strip. So I have a study that mm -hmm. is running, ongoing study that is running both in Israel and in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip, but also in Cyprus, mm -hmm. in northern and mm -hmm. uh, southern Cyprus. We see, for example, mm -hmm. that the older are both, they are more hopeful about the chances of peace, the age is a predictor of people's hope on the two dimensions. They want peace more and they think it is more possible. So the more the older people are in Cyprus and in Israel-Palestine, the more they think that uh, peace is possible and the more they desire. Women are more hopeful than men on the two dimensions. But for example, one of the really interesting findings is the connection between hope and people acceptance of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. So we know that people differ in how much they accept uncertainty as some something in life, right? Yeah. So usually people, we want to avoid uncertainty. We want... So wait, a quick clarification. So with uncertainty, do you mean you don't know what's going to happen? Or do you mean uncertainty in terms of ambiguity about you don't really know where you are right now? No, I'm saying, okay, so I'll clarify. It's a good question. So acceptance of uncertainty is the level of ease that people accept uncertainty as something in life. Some people are more comfortable mm -hmm. with the fact that the future is uncertain and some people have more problems with it, right? Usually mm -hmm. people don't like uncertainty in general, right? And they want to the future to be predictable and certain. But people differ on the levels of ease and how much they are comfortable with uncertainty. And what we mm -hmm. see is that the more people are in intractable conflict, the more people are at ease with uncertainty, the more they desire peace. So the hope, the desire dimension of mm -hmm. hope for peace is higher. And that could be mm -hmm. easily explained because people that are uncomfortable with uncertainty and they want something very predictable, they want to keep the conflict there. Because the conflict, mm. you know, it, it's painful and it has prices, but it's predictable. But the enemy... Tragically, people that are admired for so many decades and generations in conflict, for them, the conflict is predictable. We know how it yeah. looks like, you know, it, it's very predictable. But people that are more at ease with uncertainty, they allow themselves to desire and aspire for this unknown thing that is called peace, right? Peace is an unknown for Israel. Unfortunately, for Israelis and Palestinians, mutual peace is unknown. Right. So acceptance of uncertainty predicts the wish dimension or the desire dimension of hope, but not the expectation. It doesn't have any influence in that. How curious. And I'm also really surprised that you mentioned that sort of being older is associated with greater hope in both dimensions, because I would assume you'd be more cynical. They have been, they've been here for so long. They have seen it. The older you are, the wiser you are. <laughs> but it has... <laughs> Not in my case. This could be... there. Actually, there is a paper now, which is under review. It's not out there yet uh, by a colleague of mine, Beatrice Hasler, and I'm, and I'm uh, collaborating with her. 
And there she really shows that when you put, so there's a really cool experiment that she did where students put a VR kind of glasses and saw themselves older, saw themselves as in the VR experience, saw themselves as old person. And then another group saw themselves as it put VR glasses and saw themselves as they are now. And then sometime later, she asked people questions. These were Jewish Israeli students. And she asked them, what is the possibility of peace and how much they desire it? And we saw that the people that saw themselves as older people suddenly assessed the possibility of peace and the desire, their desires for peace were, was higher. That's wild. That's wild. Yeah. So what that so there are several explanations for that. Sometimes when people are at the older stage, they have a broader perspective of life. Mm. They put things in proportion. And then when they look at peace, even though they are part and involved, highly involved in the conflict, they mm. see it as something that's more desirable and more feasible. Young generation also that is influenced by the rhetoric, very strongly influenced by the rhetoric of leaders and the media will have more hostile attitudes, more skeptical attitudes many times. Yeah. So this is really, I agree, this is really fascinating. And we talked about age, we talked about gender and acceptance of uncertainty and I could go on for hours in terms of what we're doing. <laughs> yeah oh my god <laughs> this is going to turn into a three-part podcast but this is actually really curious to me and it sounds like this would be really interesting to do in different cultural contexts as well because certainly when we looked at sorry I always talk about Brexit it was a case study of mine but there was this big discourse of, oh, yeah, it's all the old people who are messing with us and like voting in this way and voting for comfort and what have you. And I really wonder, because I mean, you've mentioned this is all students in Israel that have put this on and seen themselves as old. And based on, the, I guess, their social expectation of what an old person would do, behave differently. And I really wonder whether there'd be that same social expectation about age and how you would behave in different cultural contexts. More research needed, future research. Yeah, I agree. This is something that should be like looking at the cultural aspects of age is really interesting. Mm -hmm. We'll say that in terms of hope and culture, that's another really interesting issue and something that I elaborate on in my new book. So Western cultures yeah. really value hope. One should be hopeful mm -hmm. one should aspire for the impossible and believe that everything is possible right mm -hmm. hope is highly valued and encouraged right socially encouraged it's, it's supposed mm -hmm. to be very good to be optimistic it's supposed to be good to be to to aspire and have high desires and also to believe in the possibility of attaining these desires and goals but not all cultures are like that actually. and many cultures really encourage a much more modest and humble look at the future. So one should aspire, but not too much. And one should expect the good things in life, but not too much. It's it's much more contained. And it's a, I think it's a valuable lesson to, to learn because hope has also disadvantages. So what are they? <laughs> yeah, what are the disadvantages? Should we all become hopeless? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> what I'm saying is that uh, the um, fact that we automatically think that hope is something good, mm -hmm. right? And we don't even question what and don't even look at the dangers of hope 
is that we should be really looking into that as well. Mm -hmm. And certainly in intractable conflicts or in places, like I said before, like in severe illness. Because mm -hmm. one of the things that we that could happen, there are several things that could happen. First of all, if we really hope and the goal is not attained, then our frustration would be even higher, right? Mm -hmm. Or like we were dashed hope and then you become paralyzed because you believed in the ability, you were, and then it, this didn't happen. And in intractable conflicts, it's many ways like that. There had been several attempts for negotiations between the Israelis and Palestinians over the 20, almost 30 years now, and they didn't materialize and people are now most, more frustrated. So that's one of the kind of the dangers. And the other is that you portray, so because you desire something and you also think it is possible, you portray an unrealistic analysis of reality. Mm -hmm. you, it, it, like being naive, that's another problem with hope. And one of the things that I try to crystallize in the book is like, what is the best hope? What is the sweet spot yeah. of hope where it is both, it's still people need to maintain hope because being skeptical and being hopeless, certainly in conflicts is detrimental and destructive, but also we should be avoid being naive and protect ourselves also if we want to go the long run and achieve peace in Israel-Palestine, for example. And what I describe as prudent hope, Prudent people that, that have hope but are prudent hopers are very much embedded in reality. They don't have any naive visions about the reality or about the future, right? But they still, but their hope is unquestionable, unquestionable, certainly on the desire dimension. That means that on the desire dimension. Yeah. So, and one of the thing, one of the kind of the thinkers and the philosophers that inspired me to write about prudent hope and its advantages is uh, Václav Havel. Mm -hmm. Václav Havel was the he was a playwright in the 1960s in Czechoslovakia and became a political figure because he opposed the Russian and communist influence during that mm -hmm. time. And he talked a lot about hope, and he said, "My hope is not." fueled or driven by my belief that freedom is possible, Slovenian mm -hmm. freedom is possible. It's not by mm -hmm. that. By my desires and total commitment, my the levels of wishes and desires and aspirations are so high and so unquestionable. That is the driver of what I do. And he became an activist. He, he spent some time in the communist prisons and later became the first elected president of free Czechoslovakia and later the Czech Republic. So it's me, but also other thinkers that think that hope should be looked at a very, we need to be very precise with our hope mm -hmm. and not just portray some very pink picture of reality, but still maintain it mainly on the desire dimension. Yeah, it's so interesting. Yeah, because I mentioned earlier how this sort of assumption in various Western societies that hope is a good thing. And when I hear this idea of prudent hope, it sounds so devoid of romance to me because you don't have that sort of like an almost a quest to attain this nigh, nigh upon impossible goal. But it sounds very practical. <laughs> It is in many ways, exactly. You, I think you phrase it very well. It's de-romanticizing hope. Mm -hmm. Hope is essential. People and thinkers and others rewrote, and I certainly agree about the fact that hope is an ex existential human need. We need hope. It's something like we need to eat and we need to drink. We need hope. We need to believe that the future 
uh, should be better and could be better. This is really something that is part of the human life. In many ways, there is also some evolution. Psychologists that deal with the evolution that say that the hope is one of the ingredients that made humans flourish and develop. This kind of over-assessment that we could do and accomplish things. And so certainly hope is really needed. It has huge advantages. Many empirical studies show that people that are more hopeful and more optimistic perform better on all sorts of tasks. And others, there is actually a study about more optimistic people and hopeful people, their life expectancy is higher. But also we need to be kind of beware of the pitfalls of hope. We don't want to be naive. We, won't, we don't want to go be led astray just because we hope for something. We need to be contained. Like people who are into manifestation and they're like, oh, if I put this on my vision board, it will happen. Because yeah, there's the idea of like, well, if, I, if I can think it, it will happen. And I was actually listening to a podcast. It was actually the Conan O'Brien's podcast. And he was talking with, with someone else about their very Catholic upbringing and this idea that if you punish yourself you would deserve things and so it was almost this manifestation in a different way you could sort of control the outcome because your desire was in one direction and therefore your expectation would be in that direction it's just about whether there was a cost to reach that goal or not but what would your advice be to someone then because you've described this idea of prudent hope how can we be prudently hopeful how do we actually manage that and it does it differ between the different activities we do so that's a good question. I'm a researcher and a scholar of hope and conflict, but I'm also very much active and involved and committed also to Israeli-Palestinian peace. And as someone that, that is living here, trying my best also to contribute to practical issues that have to do with conflict resolution in Israel-Palestine. Mm -hmm. One of the kind of, there is a chapter in the, one in, uh, in the book, a chapter that was based on a research led by one of my students, Shanit Almo, and she interviewed Israeli and Palestinian peace activists. And we wanted to know where does their hope lie? Because in one way, they should be, right, the most hopeful ones. They are working for peace in Israel and Palestine. Surely their hope is their engine, their expectations and desires and expectations are their drivers of what they do, right? If they didn't believe that peace is possible, why should they, they wouldn't engage in this very taxing and demanding um, peacebuilding work in Israel and Palestine? Maybe another assumption, an opposite assumption, they should be hopeless, the most hopeless people, because they are working for something and it's not being achieved. In many ways, yeah. the conflict is deteriorating. And what we saw is that their expectations for peace or their belief in the possibility of peace is not necessarily. It's not that they have a profound and a belief that peace in Israel and Palestine is possible, etc. No. It's their mm -hmm. desires. Again, like Vaslev Havel, like this prudent hope. They are very much, they are very much ingrained in the reality. They know exactly how hard it is. So their expectations are not over the roof, but their desires, mm -hmm. meaning their aspirations and commitment for themselves, for the generations to come is so unquestionable and so high and unquestionable that this is the driver of their action, okay? So if you ask me what is prudent hope, prudent hope is not giving up on the goal, but also understanding that its achievement could be challenged could or challenging, could take time. You need to be really, and you need, so this is also the way that you protect yourself from dashed hope. And the, but the driving force is this desire dimension. And also in statistical models, when we pit 
expectations versus wishes, all right? We see that wish is the more dominant uh, predictor of people's support for uh, compromise, people's willingness to support peace building initiatives. I'm talking about Israelis and Palestinians and okay. the Cypriots as well. The wish dimension is what is a stronger predictor. The expectation is also important, mm. right? It's also a predictor, but yeah, wish yeah. in most cases, the wish dimension is more important. And this is also uh, something about human life and human nature, right? In many ways, human evolution and certainly social and political evolution is was created because they desired something else Not necessarily, i don't know how many believe it's possible but they desired it so much it was so important for them so essential for them that they that society changed and uh, yeah and then that's and then it happens right <laughs> and then it happens beautifully put beautifully put and so then if this wish dimension is the perhaps more important part, you mentioned doing some types of interventions. Have any of your interventions actually helped people increase that wish dimension? How do they work? What have you done? Tell me about the interventions. I'm very <laughs> so, curious. So first of all, it's me and other colleagues that study hope. What we're trying to do is find all sorts of ways to increase both dimensions, the wish and the expectations, mm -hmm. and then see if that actually changes other aspects, other attitudes. So for example, one study that I did, this was an experimental setup. There was an online study and Jewish Israeli participants were asked to answer all sorts of questions about their attitudes concerning peace and the Palestinians and mm -hmm. conflict, etc. But some of the people saw, like all of the participants, there was also a control group, but all the participants saw a video, either a Palestinian or an Israeli guy, saying that either their peace is possible or peace is impossible. So here it was the expectation mm -hmm. dimension. Mm -hmm. And so they saw this video. It looked like the person that talked in the video was like a blogger, right? So a video blogger mm -hmm. talking about his outlook mm -hmm. into the future. And after that, then participants answered some questions and we said goodbye. A week later, suddenly, like they, they were also requested to, to fill in some questionnaire, but suddenly a pop-up window appeared that looked like initiative of a Palestinian-Israeli peace NGO. Mm -hmm. And it says, hi, we are the Israeli-Palestinian soccer team and we love soccer and sports and we play together. And this way we also learn about each other. And we were shortlisted by the United Nations to participate in this online campaign. The more support we get from the general public, the higher the chances we will get funding from the United Nations. And we're competing against other teams from other conflict zones. Please support us. And of course, the participants didn't know that it has to do with um, survey or the videos that they saw so several like before. And also mm -hmm. it looked like a real initiative. Right? Mm -hmm. So when they supported this initiative, they thought they were really supporting the Israeli-Palestinian peace building project. And mm -hmm. the people that saw the hopeful messages a week earlier tended to support this peace building project more than you know, the others or more than the control group. So we know that mm. if we induce hope, it actually changes people's behavior. Mm. It's something very hard to do on a large scale. But uh, like mm. our hope, <laughs> our wishes and expectation <laughs> is that these experiments will turn into campaigns, right? Hope-induced mm. campaigns that will be mm -hmm. distributed on a larger scale to Israelis and Palestinians and in other conflict zones. 
Amazing. So almost creating a vision or like little steps towards hope one at a time so that actually becomes a possibility in the real world. It brings people together and converges. Fabulous, fabulous. And so your book, because you were kind enough to send me the first few chapters of your book, so Hope Against Conflict is the name. And when does that it's, come out? It's a Hope Amidst Conflict. Hope Amidst Conflict. Okay, my, I'm sorry. Forgive me, please. <laughs> Brilliant. And I've got to say, I really enjoyed reading what you sent through. It's beautifully written. It's very accessible. I mean, you've structured it like an academic book, but it's highly readable. You've got beautiful turns of phrases. I wrote one down here, which was that, History does not always lean in the direction of the hopeful. And I was like, what a beautiful thing to say. A little depressing, but quite beautiful. And so I would really recommend people get their hands when it comes out. I think it's absolutely fascinating the work that you're doing. And so then as a final question, for the mediators and conflict resolvers and what have you listening today, do you have a recommendation for them when they're doing their work with clients or with groups how can they build hope if they should as mediators yeah they certainly should and experienced mediators i'm sure they know it that right skepticism and indifference really create an impasse so creating a sense of hope both increasing the desires to solve the conflict and continue in this dispute which is hurting the two sides is something i think that should be highly encouraged and also the uh, encouraging the belief that these things can be solved right mm -hmm. we also know for example from international conflicts that very highly intense conflict that many casualties were eventually solved this could inspire mediators and people that deal with alternative dispute resolution to encourage hope among the disputants fabulous so thank you so much again for joining today it's been really wonderful hearing about what you've been working on and that we can all have a hopeful future fingers crossed and so for those who are interested in learning more about your work, where can they find you? First of all, I hope that we'll, I hope, I expect and wish, I wish <laughs> and expect that we'll have, that we'll post the contact information. I really encourage people to contact me, discuss hope and conflict, but also on ResearchGate, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, everything is open. In the book, I think the book, uh, hopefully the book will come out spring of 2023. So Fantastic. So hope amidst conflict. Excellent. Well, I'll be looking forward to reading the full draft. That is for sure. So thank you so much again. And until next time, this is Laura May with the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com. This podcast has been brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com products and services, please visit us at www.mediate.com.